This is Osin Cocktail. Hi, I'm Kirby Plessis. I have 20 years experience in intelligence analysis and OSINT, and I'm the founder of Plessis.net. You can find me online on Twitter as Curbster. And I'm Cynthia Navarro, and I've been a private investigator since 1979 and went into using OSINT for my investigations in 1997. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Finnegan's Way. Welcome to OSINT Cocktail. Today we have Justin Seitz, and I think that There's no introduction needed for many of you who would be listening to our podcast, but we're going to ask him to go ahead and tell him, tell us about himself. Thanks so much for having me, Kirby. I appreciate being here and Cynthia. Um, So I started my career not doing OSINT, oddly enough. I was a web developer working on websites uh, here in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, oddly enough, is where I kind of cut my teeth, um, had a wild ride from running my own business to uh, becoming a system administrator. Uh, In between that, I actually worked as a steel worker for a period of time and really then was really fortunate to land at a startup where I really started to dig into security a bit more, reverse engineering. I spent a few years there. I was fortunate enough to be able to enter a contest and won from a company called Immunity. Uh, who was kind of one of the premier band of hackers that was doing it as a living at the time in 2007. And uh, transitioned to immunity, started building Python tools, uh, wrote a couple of books through the couple of years that I was there. I was there for about seven years with a big focus on offensive security, building hacking tools, penetration tests, um, writing exploits, all of that fun stuff. And through that period of time, I also spent a great deal of time doing open source intelligence and slowly became more drawn to working through problems uh, through that lens of using OSINT to find answers. So kind of early on in the, I guess, the 2012, 13 years, uh, I had a particular interest in counterterrorism issues. There was a lot going on in the Middle East at the time. There's some somewhat revolutionary ways that some of these groups were using social media to get their message out, to push propaganda around. Uh, we really saw the some really well-produced propaganda materials from groups like ISIS and others. And this kind of pulled me more towards the fact that this is really what I want to spend my time doing, that I felt like there's this whole ocean of information out there that was largely untapped. And that we could start to really, you know, approach this from uh, a more focused way. So in 2015, I left my job and my wife and I started uh, Dark River Systems, where I spent most of my time doing consulting work and started a course around automating OSINT uh, using Python. And through that period of time, I was still doing a lot of research and I ran into this issue where I was watching uh, a few individuals here in Canada that um, appeared to kind of show some interest in some extremist ideologies. And one night when I went to bed, I flipped my phone open and I saw this news article that had both of them featured on it as they had actually left Canada and, and joined the fight as foreign fighters. So I immediately went to my laptop because I know I kind of knew I'd been on their social media profiles and I'd watched uh, these individuals for a period of time. 
and their social media was gone. Everything was gone. And I didn't have any screenshots. I didn't have any kind of real documentation and I was really kicking myself. So uh, it was then and there I decided I'm going to build a, a simple tool that's just going to capture everything I do while I'm doing research online. It didn't have a name and it what didn't have like a user interface or anything like that. Uh, slowly but surely through my consulting and just talking with people, I realized this was actually a problem that many people face that uh, having that automatic documentation trail was something that a lot of people didn't have. And that's kind of where Hunchly was born in 2016. That's where it came from. And largely that's where I've spent my time since is talking with customers and talking to them about how web preservation works and dealing with legal issues around web preservation and working with my extremely talented team to uh, continually to make it better. You know, one of the things that I think about when I think about Hunchly is that there's a lot more than just Hunchly even coming from your company for that. I mean, you've got a lot of dark web content and you can actually use Hunchly in the dark web as well. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, sure. So much the same way, our, our, we have a dark web mailing list that goes out, uh, sends a report out every day, a very simple list of hidden services that we've discovered. Um, and it's just an automated system. And really, again, it started from kind of a pet project between myself and another individual up here in Canada that, uh, you know, we never took the pet project uh, into a commercialization phase. So much the same way, we kind of try to look for building tools, solutions, and even, you know, doing free training and webinars around, you know, what, do, what are things that I run into or people that I know kind of run into uh, commonly when they're, when they're doing investigative work. And dark web is one of those things that uh, even though it might not be something you spend a ton of time in day in, day out, I mean, there definitely are investigators that do. Uh, it was always one of those things that it just felt really tough to get started in. Like, it's easy to download the Tor browser, but what do you do once you start? Like, where do you go and how do you kind of approach uh, this problem of not having, you know, a Google-like interface into the dark web? Um, so that was really where a lot of that came from. And naturally, having Hunchly along for the ride when you're doing that work is really crucial because uh, much like uh, content in the surface web, it's much worse actually in the dark web. Things just disappear all the time or they're not up or uh, they get seized by law enforcement. So uh, having that kind of preserved copy of those hidden services as you're browsing is really a critical piece. And I know that this is something you probably get asked a lot, but I want to ask you, how big is the dark web? Because you're one of the few people who really might have a grip on the actual size. <laughs> I hate to disappoint you. I know. So I, I don't I don't actually know how large, uh, in particular, tours. I mean, when we talk about dark web, we often refer largely to Tor. Uh, there are others uh, and, you know, other services, Open Bazaar, I2P and others that, you know, uh, I have less of a grip on. Uh, you know, in terms of hidden services, I think we're probably still in the tens of thousands. Uh, and really, you know, there are companies out there that build tools uh, specifically for the dark web. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know the actual size on a day to day basis. I do know that there's in general tens of thousands uh, of hidden services. Our crawler will pick up a subset of those. Uh, it's not kind of crawling the entire dark web. So we don't have this extremely good uh, picture of all of them. Um, but it is much, much, much smaller than the surface web, as you can imagine. Yeah. yeah, that's what I wanted to kind of bring up. You'll hear every once in a while, somebody will say, oh, it's the biggest part of the web. And I think it's very confusing. And it's, it's not. It's still, like you said, tens of thousands. 
Yeah. And I think that there's also like a bit of a misnomer where, I don't know, it's all these like silly iceberg diagrams and stuff that you know people have in their presentations. And, you know, there's the surface web and then there's the deep web and the dark web. And I mean, it's really, uh, I think that, yeah, it's, you know, it, it's one of those things where the, the surface and deep web are just kind of, I, lump them together and the dark web is really anything that requires a specific service or technology to access beyond just a browser right so that includes anything like tor i2p those types of things where you you have to use another method to connect to them mm -hmm. well and then it tells you the dark web people that's unknown it's like a a hole a black hole so you say dark web and it's like ooh, <laughs> right yeah and i mean i countless times i'm asked to like you know can you go find out if this is on the dark web? And it's like, I can probably tell you that without going on the dark web, because I highly doubt that someone's going to be specifically talking about you on the dark web, right? In a lot of cases. And it's much different when you're talking about data breaches and other things. But even that, I mean, there are a lot of forums and uh, hangouts in the surface web that a lot of breach information is posted to. So yeah. it's one of those things. I mean, you know, if you're if you're working in CSAM, uh, sexual abuse material, it's definitely a place you're going to spend a ton of time because that anonymity is a requirement of those perpetrators to mm -hmm. to continue to do their work. Right. So yeah. um, I, I do think that there are people who are spending a ton of time there, but your average investigator is rarely going to jump in there, I think. Well, let's talk about your hardware. So let's, let's transition into what the Ocean Cocktail podcast really talks about, which is what do you use day to day for your investigations and your day to day operations? So hardware wise, what do you what are you using, Justin? Yeah. So for hardware, I uh, use a MacBook Pro. So uh, our team all uses MacBook Pros, uh, generally stable. It gives me the ability to have a Unix-like interface, uh, makes my job easier. Uh, I still do a ton of command line work. Um, so that is kind of my base. I've always, always used that. Uh, I've, you know, used a variety of different monitor setups and, you know, all kinds of, you know, tried a bunch of different configurations. I use a, a large single screen Dell now. I don't even know how big this thing is, but it's uh, 42 inches, something like that. So um, that's what I ended up landing on. Uh, and in terms of other hardware, so I use a YubiKey for locking down 2FA uh, so for authenticating to various services, also for uh, locking down my password manager. And then I have a collection of phones. So I have an old iPhone. Uh, I want to say it's a it might even be a six. And the reason why I have an old iPhone that's downgraded uh, and I don't update the OS on is because uh, it's jailbroken. So this allows me to install uh, tools, debugging tools um, that uh, enables me to analyze mobile applications uh, using other frameworks, um, reverse engineering frameworks, and being able to disable security features and that kind of thing so I can do that analysis. I also have an Android phone, a more modern 
Android phone that I use as a burner, uh, just when I need uh, a separate phone for a variety of reasons, uh, that's what I use. And my day-to-day -day is a modern uh, iPhone. I actually don't know even what version. I get the hand-me-down phones in this house. So uh, whatever uh, my wife is currently using, it's probably one model behind that. Uh, <laughs> um, and then I also, probably my favorite piece of hardware is an Intel NUC. So it is a little fanless server. Uh, it's about the size. If you took like four decks of cards and put them together into a square, it's about that size. Uh, it's got like two terabytes of solid state. It's got 32 gigs of RAM. It sits plugged in, powered on, and I can do anything from run you know, virtual machines to long running scraping scripts to Docker containers, all kinds of stuff on it. It's extremely stable. Uh, it runs as long as the power doesn't go out. And it's a great kind of solution for, you know, when you're looking at kind of long running tasks or you need to run, you know, maybe some something that's a little more demanding, uh, so larger software that might be a little more system demanding. It's nice to be able to offload it without putting it up in the cloud. Um, and then kind of outside of, you know, in terms of hardware that I use outside of my office, uh, I heavily use DigitalOcean. Uh, so DigitalOcean is a cloud provider, allows me to kind of spin up servers uh, as I need them. A lot of our uh, like dark web scraping stuff is actually powered off of DigitalOcean as well. And it's extremely inexpensive. So uh, it's one of my all time favorite uh, providers. I haven't run anything on DigitalOcean before, but I've ha I have heard that recommended in many quarters already, so. Yeah, they're excellent. Software. Software. So uh, I have a variety of software that I use uh, day to day. Um, first being, I use Wing IDE. So that's my preferred Python development environment. I've been using it for years and years, a solid, uh, solid way to write code. That's what I've taught all my students to use as well. Uh, so that's my primary code authoring environment. Uh, I, of course, use Hunchly uh, for any research-related tasks. That's really uh, always along for the ride for any research that I'm doing. Another big one that I use uh, that I'm a huge fan of is Aeon Timeline. So this tool is incredibly useful to do if you have anything date-based. Uh, so whether it's a social media profile or you're kind of working your way through a legal case, it is truly amazing. They just actually released a brand new version, version three. So it will do anything from like entity mapping to subway diagrams. So you can see like through the course of time, how two entities might've been linked through events super useful for OSINT practitioners because so much is dependent on timelines. When did things happen? Did things happen at the same time as other events or what preceded an event? I use it all the time when I'm working on research, really, really useful tool and it's super inexpensive. So it's not like a crazy expensive piece of software. On a larger scale, I use Docker all the time. So uh, I'm not an expert on Docker, but Docker containers are this great way to kind of, instead of the old school method of setting up a new service like a Elasticsearch or some other server software, you'll have somebody who actually knows what they're doing, who's done all the hard work for you, and you can just 
tell Docker, I want this Elasticsearch server to fire up and all of the hard work is done for you. So there are a ton of different things from reconnaissance tools, OSINT tools, server software, all kinds of stuff. More and more I'm seeing people just building Docker containers so that you can just deploy what you want when you want it. So super useful technology. I definitely, I think it's something that more and more OSINT people are gonna start using or if they haven't already. And I'm a Docker noob, so I just know the very basics uh, about using it. And to fit within that, uh, and we'll probably talk about this later as well. Another uh, software solution, a hosted software solution that I use is Chasm. So Chasm does a browser, desktop, and application isolation, meaning that with a click of a button through my browser, I can actually run a desktop in the cloud that has Hunchly installed and a browser, and I can do all of my investigative work in this secure container. And when I'm done, I can pull my Hunchly case files out and that container gets erased. So if that container gets compromised, if I'm doing some work that requires kind of, um, you know, a, has a different threat profile, I have a little bit more OPSEC and I can also spin up applications like Telegram. And we covered this in a webinar about a month ago. Uh, I can spin up an application like Telegram and uh, I'm in this secure container operating outside of my office. So if anything bad happens or I click on something I shouldn't have, I'm not getting compromised here, uh, either in a VM even I'm or on my hardware, it's actually happening out in this secure container. So it is this incredible technology. I also use... Um, for larger scale kind of research projects, or if I'm working within a team, I use Aleph from the OCCRP. So Aleph is this platform effectively, you can deploy in your own environment, you can deploy it on DigitalOcean. Uh, I have Aleph running on my Intel NUC here inside of my office. And it really is this amazing platform where you can shovel all of your documents, web pages you've captured, images, videos, whatever you want into it. Uh, and you can have an entire team be able to keyword search it. It will OCR the images for you. Metadata extraction is really designed for uh, and was originally designed to kind of do these follow the money kind of investigations that investigative journalists do. And it's an incredibly powerful tool that has really changed a lot of the team-based work that I've done. So those are kind of the big ones. And then I also use Gephi a lot if I'm doing any type of network visualization. So Gephi is a free open source tool designed to assist you in visualizing networks effectively. So there are a ton of tutorials and stuff online. Uh, and Jen Goldbeck actually is somebody that you could go uh, take a look at their work. Uh, she's done amazing work with Gephi and done these great tutorials online as well. Um, but it really is great for if you have like a spreadsheet of relationships of like thousands of lines, you can just fire it in and it will start to build that network diagram for you that we all love in OSINT seeing, you know, yeah. the little, the, the, the little diagrams that, you know, tell us uh, who's connected to who. Uh, it, there's a lot more that you can do with it, but that's really uh, something that I use frequently. Yeah. I, I'm a very visual person, so I would like that. <laughs> yeah. And Microsoft Excel. I mean, Microsoft Excel is seriously, <laughs> uh, I cannot stress enough how, important that tool is for a variety of reasons, whether you're organizing information, whether you're analyzing financial statements from SEC filings, whatever it is, uh, Excel should not be like an afterthought. It's really an incredibly useful tool or Google Sheets if you, you prefer. Either way, it's one of those things I think people like to giggle at, but it's something that uh, 
is an incredibly useful tool when you're assembling information. Absolutely. We have definitely sung the praises of Microsoft Excel before. Yeah. I mean, Google Sheets <laughs> is okay, but it still, it doesn't keep up with Microsoft Excel. Yeah. I mean, Google Sheets is nice because you can collaborate kind of in real time and, and that kind yeah. of thing. And, and there is a lot you can do with uh, Sheets in terms of like automation. And, uh, and we have some courses and stuff where we show people that like Google kind of hides some of these really powerful things behind the scenes, behind mm -hmm. their, their suite of tools. But really, like Microsoft Excel is just, yeah, it is such a crucial tool. You do a lot with uh, the command line, but when you have to use a browser, what browser do you use? 99% of the time, it's Chrome. Mm -hmm. uh, the other 1% of the time, it'll be Chromium. Or occasionally, I'll jump into Firefox. Usually with Firefox, I have my Firefox pre-configured to run through BERT proxy. So that's probably worth mentioning as well. So BERT proxy is another tool I'll use quite frequently when I'm doing mobile app analysis or I'm trying to understand um, you know, how something works. It's just one of those things that coming from the hacking world, we've used for years and years and years, but it has all these other uses, particularly in OSINT, as mobile applications tend to cough up a lot of information and you can generally go and access it with your browser in some way. So, um, but yeah, 99% of the time it, it's Google Chrome. I have another question. I, and I know that this is something that people listening are going to want to know about. Since you've done quite a bit with automation and hacking, what do you use for your security setup? So that's a great question. I mean, largely, uh, I don't use antivirus. Uh, I lock down my local network. Uh, when it comes to servers, DigitalOcean makes it very easy for you to firewall off your services. And I use a ton of common sense. So that is, those are the big things, right? And the reason why I don't use antivirus is not because I have like a particular hate for antivirus companies, but people blindly install them and don't recognize that antivirus products are the most sophisticated rootkits that exist on planet earth. They can see every single network packet that leaves your machine, every keystroke, they can see everything you do, everywhere you go, every single file you open and close because they have to in order to protect you. And the reality is, is that at the end of the day, coming from the offensive background that I came from, these products are generally also riddled with security problems. So in a lot of cases, they're not protecting you from the most modern threats. Uh, and I can assure you that that is the case because we tested our tools against them all the time. And in the worst case, they're actually opening you to more threats than they're protecting you from. So, you know, I think it's one of those things that using a simple tool like Little Snitch on your, uh, on your Mac is also going to give you a lot more protection because it's going to bring any strange network connections right up to the forefront. I think thinking about your, your threat model in terms of where do I do my work from, you know, at a minimum, and again, I guess I probably use tons more software than I mentioned, but VMware Fusion is another one I use, and I do... Most of my work, uh, if it's not in Chasm, it's in VMware Fusion, so that if anything bad happens, I can wipe that machine and it's not compromising my hardware. Now, that being said, uh, it's not. There is no perfect, a hundred percent way to stay secure, and everybody has their own setups and their own way of doing things. 
but uh, generally speaking for me, like I haven't run an antivirus product in, I couldn't actually tell you <laughs> beyond a decade longer than that. Yeah. Okay. That, that leads me to ask another question related to that. And that is you have all the ex experience with all the offensive uh, software you kind of see, and it, that makes you want to not run an antivirus, but what if you had a new a client who's a new inspector, a new investigator, they are going to be running off their own machine and you're not going to be there side by side to like tell them that this is, this is dumb. This is not common sense. What do you suggest they do? I think the biggest thing is uh, anybody can be taught how to run a virtual machine, mm -hmm. right? So that, that right out of the gate, a virtual machine, running something in a virtual machine is going to give you a level of protection right out of the box without having to retrain anything else. Microsoft Windows works exactly the same in a virtual machine as it does on your regular desktop. So you're, all you have to do is click a power button, right? Mm -hmm. And that in itself is going to protect you so that you aren't going to be exposing your regular work machine to everything that you do. So that is always my, my tip. And we've seen tons of investigators uh, with low level of technical knowledge be able to fire up virtual machines. Now, when we talk about some of the other um, services, like for example, domain tools, et cetera, what things do you pay for and what where do you go for your favorite free stuff as well? It's a great question. So um, I love Risk IQ. So I only have the community edition. I pay for security trails for historical DNS records. Um, also for automation, they got a great API that you can write code against. Um, I also use public dub, dub, dub. So they, again, are an inexpensive service, very uh, nice kind of search interface. It's not like the prettiest thing, but it's very comprehensive. So another service that I pay for, of course, uh, I guess Maltigo is uh, something I pay for and uh, another piece of software uh, I use occasionally. But when you need it and, for example, like Bitcoin transactions, it's a great tool to use, particularly if you don't have ten dollars or $20,000 to spend on a more kind of comprehensive commercial tool. So those are all things that I'll pay for. And then in a lot of cases, it's kind of dependent on what I'm doing. You know, there are times where I'll pay for a tool like an SEO tool, like Ahrefs or something like that, that, you know, I'll use it for a month because there's something that it does that's going to just save me a ton of time. But not often am I signing up for something that, uh, that I use kind of day to day. It's one of those things where it's really generally case specific. I think Dehashed is another great example of, you know, providing this great source of information um, through breach records as well. But Again, like it really depends. Shodan, I guess I pay for. So that I paid for a long time ago and it, it is worth the money. It is not that expensive and it is definitely, um, it's worth it's worth the money. I just use a regular pro account, not the uh, enterprise level one. But I think that really covers most of them. I'm trying to think if there was any other major, major services that I pay for. I think that's basically it. I mean, yeah, I think those are it. How about your favorite free services? Oh, favorite free services. That's a great question. Put me on the spot. Most of the great free stuff I use are actually like 
frameworks or software tools that are kind of installable. So again, Aleph, I was recently taught uh, MobSF, which is a mobile security frame, like a mobile malware analysis platform, which is just mind-bogglingly great for analyzing Android applications. Um, I'm trying to think of what other free stuff is something that I'm, yeah, it's, that's a tough one. I mean, again, Risk IQ community is free. So that one, uh, definitely, that one I love. I'm not really thinking of any other free services aside from, you know, the major social media platforms. <laughs> we were going to talk a little bit about Hunchly. And I can remember when you first started and I kept throwing it out there and I just watched how you have grown and grown. Uh, and you, everybody knows Hunchly now. <laughs> so why don't you talk a little bit about your current Hunchly? Anything new that you've got in it that you've added? Uh, anything you want to have in the future? Anything you're working on? Yeah, definitely. I can run you through all that. And thank you to both of you. You both were early adopters, I think, of Hunchly and have uh, have really helped. Uh, and that's really how Hunchly grew. Like you don't see us running advertisements. We don't have conference booths. Uh, it's word of mouth. It's of mouth. being part of the community, you know, trying to give back as much as we can. So the kind of current state of affairs with Hunchly is uh, in the next couple of weeks, you're going to see a revamp report builder. So I designed the original report builder in uh, like 2017, as we were approaching doing a full rewrite, re-release of Hunchly 2 in 2018. So report building was kind of an afterthought to me because I always used Word or I had my own templates for building reports. And I thought, well, you know, most people are probably going to be just like me. Uh, so that was a huge mistake uh, because it turns out most people are not, in fact, like me. And they do want to be able to write reports of some kind, right? They don't yes. want to, they're not going to write a 40 page opus in the, in the Hunchly Report Builder. But the current Hunchly Report Builder, as it stands right now, is frustrating to use. Uh, it's clunky. You really can't even write a, a medium length report in it. So, Phil, my colleague, undertook this very long process of completely redesigning the UI doing numerous uh, user experience reviews with clients and getting all kinds of feedback. And then our team has worked for months on implementing a brand new report builder. So I previewed it in December. It's going to be out in the next couple of weeks. That will be the big thing. It will be much easier if you need to turn out a very quick one pager to somebody, if a journalist needs to quickly send something to their editor as a story pitch, if you're looking to build out 50% of your report before you pull it into your regular template, you're going to be able to do those things a lot more flexible. Going forward from there, the big shift we've seen in the last couple of years is really in the three major kind of social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. They're no longer serving you one page that just keeps growing longer as you scroll down. So if you remember kind of a few years ago, you'd start scrolling down a Facebook profile and you'd hear the fans turn on on your laptop mm -hmm. and everything start to slow down eventually because really it was like this giant single web page that had you know, increasing number of images and videos and comments just kept getting added to it. And that was great for Hunchly because we could capture that whole thing in one big, long scrollable document because that's how it actually existed. Mm -hmm. However, now when you take the example of Instagram, um, you're not actually scrolling down a page anymore. They use a sleight of hand trick where you're actually only ever looking at about 12 to 16 images. 
and they just keep filling the top of the page with gray space. And so as you scroll down, what they're doing is unloading those images and then loading fresh ones in. And if you scroll back up, they unload the new stuff and reload the old stuff. So this poses a challenge for Hunchly because it's no longer capturing this one big page. It's actually this application that's moving things in and out. So we're gonna be building tools in the next release that will help to address some of those issues, some of those captures issues uh, that will be more in line with how our investigators need to be able to capture these materials. And looking further down the road, we have a more a larger engineering effort going on where Hunchly will be able to actually give you a much more accurate representation of everywhere you go, how those websites operate, how you move through those websites. So I can't go into too much detail yet without <laughs> Phil, uh, Phil getting upset with me. Hi, Phil. Um, but really, it's an exciting thing that will really change how investigators are able to review the work that they've done, be able to produce court-ready materials, and not have to worry about this kind of changing landscape as these social media companies are altering how they display information. It will largely become independent and won't rely on kind of this, this page snapshot technique. So I'm interested, uh, you had mentioned journalists. What type of end users are you getting now? Uh, is it an array of, of folks or are you just looking at uh, investigators from you know government to private and then journalists who else is using your product we have uh, a crazy array of people using it so primarily the biggest kind of slice of the pie is law enforcement or investigators that are doing work that will end up in court at some point okay right because it is not it, it's really a necessity to have that documentation time stamps you know, and being able to speak to what you saw when you saw it. Mm -hmm. After that, you have journalists, bloggers, um, a number of people who are victims of crime who are using it to kind of do their own research. I've seen a lot more of that in the last year uh, where people are self-training because they're not getting support. Um, they need to be able to kind of preserve stuff. They know where to find it. We have university students, researchers, uh, cybersecurity folks. I mean, it, it is really quite a, an impressive blend um, that crosses over pretty much, I think, any industry I can think of, there's Hunchly users of some kind. Oh, that's great. So let me ask you a question that I know folks would ask me. Uh, so as far as going into court with using your uh, product, is there been, have you been challenged at all? Yeah, I mean, we have not received any challenges as a company. So okay. we haven't received anything where one of our customers has come back and said, hey, you know, I really ran into trouble because of X, Y, or Z that mm -hmm. Hunchly did. I think the, the big thing is that we struggle with is we know our customers are taking Hunchly data into court or pretrial hearings. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that our captures are showing up in discovery. Finding that actually in Pacer or other places is like a whole other ball game because a lot of it is buried in transcripts, not mm -hmm. buried in the, the court summary. So we were fortunate that if you want to call it that, that um, there was a very kind of well-known terrorism case here in Canada where the documentation was not up to snuff. 
And effectively, a forensic expert had recommended that if they would have used Hunchley, um, they they wouldn't have had these problems, right? <laughs> so yeah. it's one of the few places you can like keyword search and and find references to it. Sure. But we do know that there are countless uh, across numerous jurisdictions and countries that are using it in court hearings. So last call is when we each share a link that we are really enjoying right now, and it could be for investigative purposes, or it could be even just something personal you really enjoy and you really think people would like. So Justin, go ahead. Right. I, I'm going to have to give another shout out to chasmweb.com. Just an amazing piece of technology that I can't think of an investigator out there that can't benefit from it in terms of being able to protect you and secure you. And it's I've deployed my own version for my own use. You can do that for free with relative ease. So again, big shout out to Chasm. It's really changed for me the level of protection uh, when I'm doing my research. Right. I'm going to look into that. Me too. Definitely. Cynthia. Yeah. So mine is uh, what's my name dot app. And what that is, is you're going to put your username in. So it will light up if that username is used within different social medias. And then if it's not lit, lit up, then, you know, it's, it's not, but what I found is I, I've missed stuff and forgot about stuff that I'm on. I, I used my name. I, I used it for a client, but I also used it for myself so I could get an idea. And I had to laugh because it's like, oh, wow, I don't ever remember writing this uh, comment uh, for something. And there were things that probably three things that were up there that I totally forgot about. Uh, so definitely when you're looking for a user on social media, it's, it's easy. I won't say anything's ever perfect, but as long as you have the right username, uh, go to whatsmyname.app. And my link is going to be opensea.io. And opensea.io is the largest marketplace for NFTs. If you haven't heard of NFTs, then you probably haven't been on Twitter because <laughs> NFTs is one of the trending topics for the last years. That stands for non-fungible token. It basically means generally a piece of artwork tied to the blockchain. It doesn't have to be artwork. It could be something like, for example, the very first tweet is on the, was on the NFTs and sold for 2.9 million. Some art have, have been selling in the millions, but anybody can get started on OpenSea.io. It's actually super easy. I, have, I am an artist, so I've loaded a little bit of my art on there, but you could, as long as you own the rights to something, you can also create an NFT of it. So for example, your own first tweet, you can go ahead and go to opensea.io and load that as an NFT just to kind of play around with it and get a feel for it. And you can do it absolutely for free. You should get something like MetaMask, um, which will be your, your wallet. You don't even have to put any Ethereum or anything in the wallet. Then you connect it to opensea.io and mint your first NFT. That is our episode for today. Thank you so much for being with us, Justin. Thank, Thank you very Justin. much for having me. Awesome to talk to you. It's been a very long time. Thank you. And don't forget to rate us on your favorite podcast app. Also, please share so that we can continue sharing this podcast with you. 